0: Hello and welcome to the Religious Nationalism Podcast. My name is Crawford Gribben, and today Darl Hart and I have the chance to catch up with Eric Kaufman. Eric is Professor of Politics at Birkbeck University of London, and he's written prolifically on themes that relate to this podcast. His books include White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities; Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? The Rise and Fall of Anglo America, and several other titles in the history of religious nationalism. Here in Northern Ireland. Eric's work prompts a great deal of discussion and we're really delighted that he's able to join us today to talk about his work. Eric, thank you for your time and welcome to the show. Great, thanks for having me here. Well Eric, we're recording this podcast in the back of the US presidential election in which it appears that President Trump has increased his level of support among more or less every demographic group except college educated white men. The election provides a fascinating context for the arguments of your most recent book, White Shift, which came out with Penguin in 2018. Do you see the results of the election confirming your big argument in that book, that over time certain ethnic groups will come to identify with cultural, if not exactly with ethnic whiteness? And those are maybe not the best terms to use, but you'll be able to help us think through this problem. Yeah, I
1: think that's right. I think the big... uh surprise, I guess you could say, this time was the shift of uh, Latinos and Asians, and to some extent African Americans, toward Trump. Um, now, it is, of course, worth putting in perspective the fact that these groups are still much more likely to vote for the Democrats than the Republicans. So, But it's the direction of the shift that that kind of has raised eyebrows. Um, and yeah, in my book, I kind of argued that Identification with American national identity, uh, whose symbol structure entails a lot of symbols which are were developed by not just whites, but white Anglo-Protestant Americans. Um, what that essentially means is a lot of minority groups, in identifying with American national identity, to some extent are identifying with uh, some of those ethno-cultural touchstones alongside that. And and so it's kind of implicit in that identification with America is is a certain endorsement of of aspects of the ethnocultural particularity of America, Um, and I think you can see this in in some of the studies, particularly of Latinos, where uh, more you know U.S. born English speaking Latinos, Latinos who identify as Protestant as white, they tend to be more likely to vote for Trump. Um and so there's this kind of acculturation process not a hundred not a million miles away from what we saw with white Catholics between Kennedy's election when you know eighty-five percent or more voted for the Democrats and then fast forward even forty years to George W. Bush and that eighty-five was down to about forty-five or so. So so you kind of there is this assimilation process into Well, into what I call an ethno-traditional conception of America. Um, This is amongst non-white groups. So, yeah, I think we see that now. And actually, if you dig into the the survey data, you can see that particularly Latino and Asian Trump voters and even African-American Trump voters don't differ all that much from white Trump voters in a lot of their
0: cultural attitudes. Interesting. Uh, Eric, you, you've written a lot about various kinds of religious nationalism. Obviously, that's uh, the big topic that, that we talk about in this podcast. I'm thinking of your work about the Orange Order in Northern Ireland and wow. elsewhere uh, in your publication list too. One of the things that Darrell and I have been talking about over the last few months is why Christian nationalism seems to play so well at a national level in the US and seems not to exist as a consensus-making discourse at a national level in the UK. Perhaps we're wrong in that sense. But I know this is maybe a slightly different issue, but do you think that whiteness has a religious component in America as part of that frame of, of religious nationalism and that it doesn't in the UK? Um, well, I. that's a good, that's a very good question. I think that the,
1: first of all, Christian nationalism, I have some problems with that terminology. And I know Samuel Perry has written about this. Um, Partly because you have a lot of non-white Americans who have a a strong Christian identity, but who score lower on some of the, you know, for example, white identity, Trump support, some of these other things. Um, If you ask a lot of Americans, you know, how important is it to be Christian for being an American? Some minority groups will give a higher answer to that question than whites, and yet these will not be Trump voters. So I think it's a bit problematic to sort of equate attachment to, yes, yes, being Christian is important for being American with being sort of a Trump voter with the white nationalism. Actually, there are overlaps in places, but there's also a lot of distance between these things. Um, So I guess I'm a little bit more skittish on the use of the term Christian nationalism. Now, it is, of course, the case that if you think white Americans... Those who would say that, you know, it is important to be Christian to be a a true American would be more likely to be Trump voters. So within the white uh, group, that is the case. And I suspect to some degree within the Latino and Asian population, too. Britain uh, is a bit different, partly because um, the Protestant basis for Britishness kind of eroded in the 20th century except in Northern Ireland, which is a sort of, we can talk about that. But in the rest of Britain, as Steve Bruce writes, uh, you know, there was this erosion and British identity was no longer oriented towards Protestantism to the point that many Catholics, you know, feel as equally English as Protestants. um, And that issue has sort of faded. Um, So there's less of a religious tinge to it I suppose in Britain uh, into the to the national identity whereas in the. US I think some of that old uh, Protestant nationalism to some extent persists in the in the evangelical kind of Republican evangelical wing in the south so that still colors national identity amongst that constituency and of course one of the points I make it, it, around nationalism is, nationalism is nationalism is not one thing it is, there are competing nationalisms in every country. Uh, so the U.S., there's, there is a, a competing nationalism, which is more Christian. And then there's another nationalism, which favors things like diversity and immigration. Um, in Britain, what's quite interesting, if you ask people, a BBC did a survey on Englishness. If you ask people, how important is British, Britain's Christian heritage for your Englishness? Uh, church attenders, it's hugely important. It's like, 80% or something. Whereas those who say they have no religion, it's, it's really low. It's sort of 20%. Mm. Ethnic minorities are, even, are a bit higher than secular white British people in saying Christian heritage is important for English identity. So it's all about competition over which version of national identity uh, is to the fore. And, and, and I kind of want to, I actually think too much has been made of this ethnic versus civic that some nations are like Germany and they're ethnic and some are like France and they're civic. I I think that really breaks down when you look at any kind of individual data that actually the competition is going on within each and every country.
2: Well, you, you mentioned evangelical there a second. Um, I, I saw someone or heard someone talking about recent polling, exit polling data from this presidential election and that some Jews and Muslims actually identified as evangelical, which makes me wonder. It was like eight percent, maybe, or something right. like that. But still, it's 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 staggering in a way. So, is that is that to you does that indicate that evangelical is also sort of one of these fluid categories like white, um, that is becoming just a, a political denominator rather than, than a religious one. I, I, I just, I, I'm just curious what you make of that. That is interesting. I haven't seen that, but it, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, Putnam and Campbell's book,
1: they very much show how the political and the religious intertwine, so you will change denomination to suit your politics, switch away from the Episcopalians, even towards the Mormons, you know, uh, based uh-huh. on being a Republican. And I, and I think that, therefore, I would have thought... Jews who are Republican, for example, might look favorably on that label and decide to adopt it, Uh, or a Catholic, right? (laughs) So so it's not entirely surprising from that perspective. Uh, The politics and the religious are influencing each other. I mean, it's a bit like um, someone who's half Latino and half white. So someone of that mixed background who's Republican will tend to identify more as white. And if they're Democrat they'll identify more as as um, Latino. And, and huh. I think something similar is going
2: on here. Yeah. the political is dominant. <clears throat> on. Just one follow up too to what you were saying in the, to Crawford's question about the UK versus the US. Um, since I, I'm in Michigan and close to the close to Canada, I don't follow Canadian uh matters the way I should, although I did I was Interested in the in the reaction to um, the prime minister's announcement that they're going to increase immigration, some kind of policies, and there was an overwhelming poll against that. But um, would you situate? How would you situate Canada on these questions of religious identity or whiteness in relation to the U.S. and the U.K.? Is it somewhat in between, or is it lean more U.K. than U.S.? Yeah. I mean, just bracketing out Quebec for a minute, I, I think that English Canada's,
1: almost everything tends to be in the middle between the two. Um, and that's true in terms of religious attendance, in terms of, you know, evangelicalism, um, in terms of national identity, again, Canada, what's happened in Canada is quite interesting and it hasn't been picked up by a lot of people. Canada's going through... A shift to becoming a more polarized society, mm. um, and it's it's happened almost kind of in tandem. Well, no, I shouldn't say in tandem. It's happened quite suddenly from about 2015. Uh, if you look at the approval ratings for Justin Trudeau amongst conservative voters, I mean, it's been. I mean, the last time series I saw showed it under sort of between three and six percent. Mm. Um, it's just you know Canada has seems to be undergoing a a much bigger partisan polarization in the English part now. And an in, in issue like immigration, you really see that. The gap between conservative and liberal voters on immigration was about 10 to 15 points as recently as 2015, and it's now like 50 points or 55. Same thing that's happened in the U.S. between pre-Trump and post-Trump. You had the split on immigration amongst white Americans by party, which was about 10, 12 points going to... Fifty points with Trump, and that same same sort of thing seems to have happened in Canada, and that's without, by the way, a major populist figure activating those divisions. So that sorting is is seems to it seems to be that Trudeau has been a, a radicalizing and polarizing figure. Uh, although I'm not sure it's just Trudeau, but all I would say is even though we don't see the kind of populism. Well, we see it in, 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 at the provincial level, but we haven't seen it federally in Canada as much. I, I would say that a lot of the same things that are happening in, in the U.S. And, and also to some extent Britain are occurring in Canada as well. Hmm. Um, and, and, and it's, but it's, yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. We'll see how developments roll in, go on. But the sort of acrimony in the political conversation Uh, is much greater now than it would have been in the past in Canada. And and at the same time, the separatist, the French-English issue, seems to actually have come down in terms of its salience. Right. So you're no longer, I mean, yes, there, of course, is some sort of a discussion on that, but it's not got the same, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to have the same presence it did when I was growing up, when that issue dominated everything. Right. Uh, now, the kind of internal ideological splits, which are very similar to what we see in the U.S. and, and Britain, which are these value-based divisions, which are reordering politics away from the older divisions of economics, uh, those are becoming more prominent uh, as well. So, in a way, they're all becoming more like Northern Ireland. You know, <laughs> I say that in a way, but, you know, Northern Ireland doesn't have the left-right economic part of. Uh, Parties like Liberal, Conservative, or, you know, Labour, uh, the, the divides are more cultural, uh, you know, Unionist, Nationalist. Now, I'm not saying that that's exactly what's happened, but the, you now can see, like in Britain, the Tory party has more or less the same class composition as the Labour Party. Um, and in the U.S., I think there's been a shift as well that, that the Republicans have become more working class and the Democrats have become more elite and middle class so you're, you're starting to get this erosion of you know the parties are looking more similar economically but they're looking very very much more different culturally uh, so it's not it isn't northern ireland yet but it's it's kind of on the route on the way
0: <laughs> mm. well eric you're setting yourself up for some interesting questions there towards the end of the podcast maybe we'll come back to that context but for now can i ask you again about about your your most recent book here white shift um, one of the arguments, I mean it's a very long book what 600 pages, very nuanced huge amounts of data there that you're interpreting um, and you know some very subtle arguments as well, weaving their way all the way through fascinating book to read but I think one of the arguments that you develop there is that as European populations become less ethnically white, large parts of those populations will continue to identify with some kind of cultural whiteness that they associate with the nation, its history, its tradition Um, and so on and i was fascinated by your argument in religious terms because one of the things the book does is to expand on some earlier arguments you've made about the locations the religious locations in which uh, what we might call ethnic whiteness is most likely to be preserved and here you're thinking about religious societies that that operate at a distance from the outside world and tend to practice some form of um in um, dogmy that they, they don't really marry out. Um, one of the stats I most enjoyed in the book was that if image image growth continues at the present rate, within about two hundred years, they'll account for fifty percent of the American population. I'm trying to imagine <laughs> quite you know who's investing in buggies and and what the futures and that might be. But what would the implications of that kind of um, religious stroke racial? Um, not quite sure what the right word is, but but growth impact upon the development of religious nationalism
1: yeah i mean this is obviously a very long long long-term development uh although i i actually think we're going to be talking more and more about this um and and, uh, because i mean you're probably aware globally demographically the developed world east asia western europe east europe they are all not replacing themselves demographically the however it is almost throughout the world the case that Practicing religious populations have a replacement level or higher birth rate, and, and sort of, endogenous sort of what I call endogenous growth sets uh, like the Amish or ultra orthodox Jews uh, have, you know, fertility rates that are on the order of three four times as high as mm. the rest of the population. And if you run the number, and they have very high retention, um, and so yeah, I think if you run that forward, you're going to have a situation where you know, the growth in, if you like, the white population is going to be coming out of these groups. Uh, And and the Mormons are... Sorry, excuse me. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so so what does that mean? I guess it means, you know, it means, first of all, obviously a return of of whiteness in a way, because all of these groups tend to be white, the ones that have very high uh, fertility rates. Uh, But, of course, you wouldn't call that nationalism. I mean, in some ways, they would be seen as outside the nation, even the Mormons. You know, they're kind of, what is the relationship between these groups and and American nationalism? So if if they were to become a large part of the population, I suspect issues around ethnicity and race will become a lot less important, and issues around religiosity between seculars or moderates on the one hand, and... uh, these growth sects—these were uh, highly religious, uh, world-denying sects—that that will become a big division. We're just at the very, very, very beginning of this process. Uh, you know, you can see little bits of it, like in parts of rural Ontario, in northern Ontario, and the least attractive farmland is is being bought up by, you know, Hutterites and and Amish uh, groups. You know, so it's starting just pinpoints right now, but but. If you actually run the math behind it, uh, this could become quite significant. Of course, it is very significant in Israel, where the ultra-Orthodox are now a third of the first graders. And so (laughs) that is a major political issue, their growth. Um, I suspect Israel is kind of a leading indicator of what's going to happen in North America as well. Does the argument translate here into the UK? Not really. I mean, you have got an ultra-Orthodox Jewish uh, community uh, but you don't have anything even like like the Dutch have their uh, ultra you know the Orthodox Calvinists and the Finnish have their Orthodox Lutheran's who all have this very high fertility pattern um, but there's nothing like that in Britain so uh, you know it's going to take a long time for the ultra-orthodox Jews to populate Great Britain but it's... <laughs> but it's interesting I have a friend Paul Moreland who's got a new book called tomorrow's people which is all about who is going to be the world's population in, you know, a century or two. And, and uh, if,
2: we're,
1: if we continue to have the same fertility dynamics that we do now, where seculars have very low birth rates and these strongly religious groups have very high birth rates, then it, it, is, it only stands to reason mathematically that these groups will ultimately populate, especially if they're able to retain, uh, you know, the children within the fold. And, of course, they are strong religions, so they are able to do that. And so that will be a question that will be debated in a century, uh, you know, in, in the West. But but I don't think it's going to be debated before
2: then. Uh. Um, so as a political scientist, um, <clears throat> we, I, I see in reviews of your book and in, in your own writing um, references to nation um, group and um, Civilization, uh, that's maybe not what you use, but I've seen that in, so, in some reviews, whether there's a white civilization, et cetera. Um, and, and I'm just w- wondering about the political categories here. It seems to me that a nation makes sense as a political category. Um, and some other, say, a state or provincial body may make sense, but a group seems awfully amorphous. Um, you can look at maybe churches or synagogues or mosques or something and, and look at how they're registered with a uh, in a particular society, whether or not people who identify religiously with those institutions uh, do so anymore is another question. But I, I'm, I'm curious, um, I guess the question goes to, you spend a lot of time thinking about these groups and their identity, which is in some ways, part of a national identity. But I guess the politics of nations seem to be able to trump a group identity in a way because the group doesn't have power. It may be able to reproduce like you we are just talking about, but it doesn't have necessarily political outlets for its power other than through those supplied by the nation. So how much good does it even do to talk about a group identity, I guess? And I'm not trying to raise that as a hostile question at all, but... Um... Well, I think there are different entities, and, and you know, I teach a, a
1: master's degree on nationalism and, and ethnic conflict, and I think and I was supervised by Anthony Smith, who, of course, is a historical sociologist of nationalism, and we always have a lot of these discussions about the definition. The late Anthony Smith, I should say, who, uh, unfortunately, has passed away a few years ago, but The idea of nation, as Smith understood it, and and I've come to see it, is essentially a a territorial community that that either has its own state or has some kind of political aspiration. And that without that political aspiration, it can't be considered a nation. Um, And and without a territoriality, it can't be a nation. So that the nation is kind of a a territorial, even if it's like Scotland and it doesn't have its own state. Um, But ethnic group is, is... is about subjective myths of genealogical origin uh, as demarcated by cultural markers, such as um, language, religion, uh, physical appearance. Um, Now, of course, how do these things interact? Well, you can have multi-ethnic states and even multi-ethnic nations like the United States, but typically Many nations, not all, but many uh, were founded in in a way by a dominant ethnic group, and and often there is an implicit association between the dominant ethnic group, like in the U.S., WASP American, for example. uh, That ethnic group is very closely tied to the United States in, in its symbols. If you ask, I've asked on surveys, most Catholic Americans will say Protestant is a more characteristically American religion than Catholicism. Um, you know, most most Americans will say Smith is a more American-sounding name than uh, Giacometti or, or or Schultz. You know, so it's it's the case, therefore, that you have this association, um, and the ethnic groups matter too because you know if they vote different ways, you know, ninety percent of African Americans vote for the Democrats, let's say, uh, and you know, maybe 60% of of white Americans vote for the Republicans, you know, that starts to have some impact on the politics. Mm -hmm. And especially if there are, you don't have only ethnic groups and nations, but you've also got competing versions, as I mentioned, of nationhood. You know, every individual will have their own, what Percy Cohen called personal nationhood, their own personal vision of what matters, what symbols matter, landscape, it might be religion, it might be the Constitution, whatever. Um, but people will have different conceptions in their heads of what the nation is and politically these can compete. So I would say right now a very clear divide in many Western countries is between people who say diversity is an important aspect of their conception of nationhood and other people who would, would say that that is much less important and that actually it is about things like landscape and history and to some extent, the ethnic majority being a majority of the population, not the whole population, but a significant share of the population. And those, so you have those two competing conceptions, and I wouldn't call them ethnic and civic. I think that's very crude. I think what I would say mm. is one is ethno-traditional in that it values the ethnic majority as part of the nation, and the other is is more focused on diversity uh, as as a characteristic of the nation. So so that's where the ethnic kind of gets infused, the ethnic symbols get infused in these competing conceptions of the nation, which become important politically. I think the Republicans and Democrats represent two very different competing conceptions.
2: Well, I'll jump in before I let Crawford get another one in there. But this <laughs> right. relates to one of the the bigger concerns that I've had observing the united states over the last six months with the destruction of national symbols in the terms of the statues um in addition to which on top before that came the 1619 project and rewriting national identity in that way and and now we're coming up on if our governors will let us thanksgiving and 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 you know there. are already beginning a number of articles uh, not to mention recent books on the pilgrims and the settling of Plymouth Colony, etc. And, and I'm curious if you have thought much about, if you have a, a national identity that's bound up with certain narratives which the United States has and it's per, it's been remarkable how long the, the Protestant narrative has persisted uh, to, for good or ill. Is Is it possible to create a new narrative or do you just sort of deconstruct? I mean, you just actually (laughs) abandon the old narrative and you, I don't know if you can actually create one though, based on some kind of um, diversity point of view. Well, I mean, I think Smith, um, Anthony Smith would say that it's very difficult to
1: create something a new, to invent a wholly new tradition if it doesn't have a resonance with the population. Um, and I think here's where something like 1619, it's going to have a resonance with a part of the population, but it's never going to have a resonance with probably the majority of the population. Now, it, is it possible with enough hardcore socialization over enough generation? I mean, I think if you look at the multiculturalism of Canada, which is a kind of core component of the hmm. post- 1960s Canadian national identity. That was an attempt to create something which really had pretty weak roots. I mean, you had essentially a bicultural society there, and really there there was a, only a very small share of the population which was not British or French by ancestry as late as sort of 1960. Um, there was an attempt to kind of create this thing, and it has developed some traction, but what we've seen in the last... I'd say 10 years is there's now a much greater uh, divide over multiculturalism as a symbol. Whereas it was kind of accepted when it was new, partly because everyone interpreted it in their own way. Uh, but now what you see is co- conservative party voters are much cooler on multiculturalism as a symbol than liberal or NDP voters. And, and I think I would suspect, and something like the 1619 Project, would you'd get the same division it would just be a very divided country that one part would, would think this has got nothing to do with me and the other part would think you know i can buy into this uh, so and this is where i think that's a, that's only going to lead to division it's probably better to go with 1776 and you can garnish it with a bit of 1619 right. but i think just trying to to, to make 1619 a central narrative I, I think is you're headed for trouble is what i would have thought
0: yeah uh-huh. speaking of trouble Um, Eric you've written a lot about Northern Ireland Um, I live here but I don't make any uh, um, I I don't make any claim to understand it Um, so as you observe the situation here in the the north over the last 20-30 years or so do you see are you still happy to use the language of nationalism or nationalisms to talk about the various options uh, that are here politically and do you see them changing over time to become something else
2: yeah, it's
1: quite interesting. I mean, I think what you have in, in Northern Ireland are two competing uh, nationalisms. Yeah, you have a a British Unionist nationalism and, and an Irish Catholic nationalism. Um, and I think that's not going to, you know, that's, there's no real signs of that changing. The only thing I would say is that for a long time, those of us who, who looked at Northern Ireland talked about the kind of frozen peace that, you know, you had peace, but you didn't have you know intermarriage integrated schooling voting was still pretty much along sectarian lines now I think there are some indicators that you know so the vote for the alliance party in the last election uh, slight increase I think in integrated school support Uh, you know I think there is that kind of non-sectarian third sector emerging a little bit more but I still think for the most part that the that the province is pretty much still, uh, I think, characterized as, as being two competing nationalisms, um, even as both have made certain accommodations to the status quo. And, and all this talk about going back to war, if you don't get, uh, you know, if Brexit leads to a hard border, I think that's ridiculous. But on the other hand, you have got this, um, there is no question that each side will, will still interpret events through their particular lenses, and they still have the same goals: United Ireland <coughs> versus the Union, uh, um, which hasn't gone away. So, uh, so yeah, I think. Um, I mean, that's not to say that the character of the individual national identities ha- has remained static. I think, for example, the covenantal Protestant aspect in the Unionist uh, version of national identity is not as powerful as it might have been in the past. Uh, so it's it's maybe a bit more secular in a way, a bit less religious. Um, and on the on the nationalist side, well, it was always a bit unclear because you had Marxist strains in in there, and and then also you had the more SDLP Catholic strain. Um, and and there's, I think it's a blend of those two. I don't think the uh, religious aspect is necessarily growing in strength, though.
2: So my last question, and I don't know if Crawford wants to ask one more, um, he could nod or, and this is going to be sort of out, but on the other hand, it's, it's it's very relevant here in Michigan, at least we just received new instructions from the governor about the pandemic and, and um, social distancing and the like. But as I observe the news coverage and, and watch the data of the pandemic, um, it, it strikes me that Um, state governors have never been more relevant, never more powerful, but also the data, so much of the data about the pandemic is coming from nations. Um, And, and, you know, there's restrictions on travel between nations. There's even restrictions on travel between states in the United States. So the question here isn't to get you to take a side on my particular obsessions, but whether if see any kind of data that suggests um, an increase of national identity during the pandemic because this has been based around trying to protect the national health system, say, in the UK, or trying to protect the United States, in, you know, from Trump and what he's been doing. It does seem like there's a, been a heightened nationalism in effect during the pandemic and i'm curious whether you see have seen that or if you've even been, but
1: i'm interested in that i think there's some research suggesting that this sort of need to protect against pathogens is a very primitive human reaction and that 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 during these pandemics you get an up an increase in in huh. nationalism there's some evidence i think that, that populations are a bit more anti-immigration although of course that could just be very instrumental not wanting to have, um, you know, the pathogens come into your your country. So I think on the one hand, there is some of what you're talking about going on. And I know in Canada, there's, you know, so there's that, because they have very low infection rate, they kind of want to keep the borders sealed. So that's going on on the one hand. But on the other hand, I think for the national populism phenomenon, actually the COVID uh, episode weakens, Populism, And we've seen that, by the way, if you look across Europe, support for a lot of the AFD and Salvini and uh, mm. support for populism is down a bit.
2: Mm.
1: Now, the reason for that is, is because uh, the issues that are top of the agenda are economics, you know, recovering economic recovery, plus the pandemic. Very technical, uh, very material issues, not the kind of cultural, spiritual issues which really benefit populism more. So paradoxically, I think you're getting a slight increase in in national unity and and aspects of nationalism, but at the same time, that's weakening uh, the kind of ethno-traditional nationalism that drives populism. So what I would say is once the pandemic is through, if we get through this and the economic worries go away, that's when you're going to start to see sort of what we saw in 2014 and onwards coming back. I would expect the kind of populism to come back once immigration and trade start moving again. But once they're halted, um, and everyone's worrying about the economy, then they're gonna fade down hmm. the priority list.
2: No, that makes sense. Thanks. Well, I think we are we need to wrap up, we're out of time. Um, you write for Quillette, and um, you Crawford mentioned your books at the beginning. Is there another outlet where you write regularly o- online? Well,
1: I write in unheard. I've got a lot. of. That's humor. right. That's right. Um, and, you know, I, they, things will pop up, you know, even in the New York Times or the Times. Right. I mean, it just depends. I don't write regularly, but occasionally something will miraculously land. So.
2: Well, we recommend you highly to our listeners, <laughs> all 10 of them. And uh, anyway, uh, it's, it's been a delight to have you on and uh, continued best wishes on your, on your work um, and hope to meet you sometime in person. Thanks, thanks, and keep up this excellent podcast, by the way. It's a great idea. Thank, thank you. Eric.
1: Thank you. Okay, thanks. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye.
0: See you. Well, Daryl, what did you think of that?
2: Uh, boy, it was it was great, but we had him a very short time, and we need to have him back on. Eric, that is. Um, can't... Um, And he just has so many um, angles on the material and topics we're going over, even though he's doing it from a political science perspective. um, And he has so much of the data at his disposal. Uh, But I, I, as a political scientist who teaches about nationalism, I really would like to pick his brain more about some of these categories and, you know, the the fluid way that people across different disciplines use these categories, too. But overall, on the concept of nationalism, you know, since 2016, with either Brexit and or Trump, people, at least over here in the States, have uh, a certain strand of commentariat have really poo-pooed the idea of nationalism, that it's Something that's associated with far right, but for somebody like Dr. Kaufman, it's it's part and parcel of what they do. I mean, you study nation nations, you study national identity. It's and the, nations are really important parts of creating some kind of stability in human experience. Yeah, it was striking that that uh, he, he
0: mentioned competing kinds of nationalisms in the states between the, this sort of. Um, a Republican kind of nationalism which is very interested in a certain kind of set of values and a Democratic Republican is, or a Democratic nationalism which has got a different kind of value system. Um, well, he, he made a distinction, I need to go and listen to it again, uh, about... Um, and I, I think he said he saw something similar in Northern Ireland about the, the, the political polls no longer being dissociated by economic views, but rather right. by cultural views or other kinds of values that are built into them. And obviously religion is 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 part of that um different kinds of religion on both sides sort of christian nationalism maybe um on the republican side versus this other kind of nationalism a civic nationalism on the democratic side but I was quite interested in, in the way in which Eric talked about christian nationalism in the states what what did you how, how did you pick up on that
2: um i guess i <sighs> I didn't – it seemed to track with everything I've read by him. So it didn't necessarily lead me to any um, either questions or or, um, further lines of inquiry, even though I'd like to – I mean, for my own uh, work on Protestantism in the United States, his his first book on the uh, Anglo-American world – and the creation of a Protestant national identity, I think, is really useful for thinking about evangelicalism. Because I, my own take on this is that evangelicals came along and tried to fill the void that the mainline had had um, created when it abandoned some kind of Protestant nationalism. Yeah. But also conversely, I wasn't expecting that we would go there. But when he was talking about Canada… Hmm. And the sort of the creation of a multicultural narrative for Canada versus the older one that somehow tried to do justice to both the French and the the British backgrounds was really intriguing and I need to look at that more especially mm. with relation to um Christianity in Canada yeah both. L- L- Lydia Bean's
0: book which we both you know <clears throat> we both know and, and appreciate I thought, I mean, it's really insightful, I thought, on that distinction between um, Detroit area um, Christian nationalism versus Ontario area Christian nationalism. And, you know, it turns out that they're completely different species. Right. Um, aren't they? What did you think about the, the, the discussion we had about evangelicalism as a political category?
2: I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I I, th- I couldn't describe it in the terms that he does, but that's been a big part of my understanding of evangelicalism for the last 20 years, that it really has been much more of a, a political entity than it has been a religious one, um, and I think, say, the religious leadership within evangelicalism at certain institutions, like, say, seminaries or uh, Christianity Today magazine, National Association of Evangelicals. I don't think they wanted it to become political, but then it did. And it it seemed to gel fairly well with what those other institutions had been doing, mm. but they didn't necessarily put the brakes on the, the way I think they could have to say, no, this is not a political endeavor. Mm. Um, but fears of secularization, fears of moral decline, the, um, the work that, Richard John Newhouse did with Evangelicals and Catholics together, plus Chuck Colson on the other side, I think was another way to make sort of bridge a gap between Protestants and Roman Catholics in a more political way, mm. even though they always denied that it, this was a political uh, endeavor. Mm. Really interesting
0: in the last election, we We've well, we haven't quite finished it yet, have we? But we're sort of at the tail end of
2: the last election, <laughs> the 2020 election. We're, we're this is only, like, yeah, this we're, is like we're recording... the end of the uh, <laughs> the pandemic. We're, we're flattening the curve. Yeah, no, we're not flattening the curve. The election will continue, <laughs> I think.
0: Um But oh, obviously evangelicals, not evangelicals, but evangelicals, Daryl, tended to split between supporting um, sort of Republican, right, Democratic, left type things. But, you know, if, if evangelicals not thinking of them now as a political category, but some kind of religious movement, movements, subculture, market, however we describe it. If if, if, if a number of them, if a number of high-profile people were moving to support Biden in that campaign, were they searching for an alternative Christian nationalism? Or are they actually embracing this kind of different kind of, 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 of nationalism that Eric was describing on the American left that's multicultural, different set of values? In other words... Is, is this idea of transformationalism now trying to transform the American left as
2: well right I think if I can I'll mention names anyway uh, when it came out recently that Mark Dever Baptist pastor in, in Washington DC and Tim Keller were both registered Democrat one explanation for that was well if you're going to have any kind of meaningful vote in the in the city primaries, you have to be registered democrat that that makes some sense, but say, in their case, even if they voted for Biden, which I suspect that they did, and i think i don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. They probably were voting more from a for a a kind of Christian nationalism that was respectable. This was a way to do it without all of the baggage that Donald Trump and his other evangelical so-called court evangelicals had around them. Um, But I think some younger, more utopian type of of evangelicals, reformed Presbyterian pastors, they might have been voting. I mean, they probably would have preferred to vote for Bernie rather than Biden, but Biden was as good as they could get. And, you know, they probably may be frustrated with the moderation of Biden, if that's the way his administration turns out. Mm. So I, I'm curious to you, though, back to the point about nationalism, religion, and economics, not that you're an economic historian, but did you, are you convinced that, say, you can decouple uh, economics from, say, ethnic Identity, because so much of the analysis here of Trump and his his supporters, many of whom identify as evangelical, has been also this is the <clears throat> the working class people left behind by a global economy, and I'm I'd like to talk to Eric more about the data he sees that distinguishes the two, say the J.D. Vance type of person. Um. I didn't, when I read Hillbilly Elegy, I didn't get the sense that that was a very religious book or even, I mean, ethnic to a point, but mainly just because all these people were white, but not, economics seemed to be a much bigger category. Yeah, I'm not sure I can talk
0: about his economics, but I I mean, when I read Hillbilly Elegy, the thing that jumped out at me was the way in which he was trying to attach, in which J.D. Vance was trying to attach his background a kind of Ulster-Scots slash Scots-Irish mm. uh, mentality. And, and you know, he tries to... He actually describes it in economic terms, um, describing waste and, you know, proliferation of, of items and accessories which can be dumped when they're inconvenient and, and houses get filled up with other kinds of um, rubbish. Um, you know, the op- opioid crisis, he, he seemed to want to relate to this mm. as well. Um, yeah, uh, yeah... Yeah, I mean, Eric's comment about Northern Ireland was interesting when he described the two sides we have in politics here as not really being differentiated according to economics, but much more according to other kinds of cultural triggers mm-hmm. or, or, or values. I think that makes sense here. Um, I think that's a good observation here. Not sure how that applies to the States. I so would need to know much more about American right. political life.
2: Well,. That may be all we, we can say for now. Uh, but Maybe we definitely we, need, need to have him back on. Yeah, and for, for uh, case, yeah. I really like what he had to say about civil religion. Yeah. Although I, I would also like to talk to him more about that because there are times when I think there is a there is a kind of sacral quality to American civil religion that invests the Constitution with a um, almost divinely inspired category of course the mormons do this yeah um, and you know so again he was really good though that so many of the categories are not airtight and in a sense they're fluid what isn't fluid is the data that he has which is also incredibly fascinating yeah there's tons of it i mean 600 pages in his last
0: book mm-hmm. dripping with stats graphs anecdotes you name it. My favourite one is the one about the Amish taking over America within two centuries.
2: Can't wait to see what happens. It'd be really good for the environment. Well, if the, if the Baptists are descendants of the Anabaptists, I mean, hasn't it already happened? They're not. <laughs> good night, Daryl.
0: All right. Good to talk to you. See you.